Welcome to Policy Today. Thoughtful discussion of current issues vital to the future prosperity of Washington State. Produced by the Washington Research Council. Hello, welcome to the Common Ground edition of our Policy Today podcast. This is Mary Strau with the Washington Research Council. Um, I'm flying solo today. Lou uh, wasn't able to make it, and Randy is out sick. So, Randy, we hope you feel better. Um, Today, we are pleased to have as our guest uh, State Representative Chad Magandans, who represents the 5th Legislative District um, and is the ranking Republican on the House Education Committee and also sits on the House Appropriations Committee. Um, Two very important... uh, areas for the subject we're going to be talking about today, which is education, um, more specifically the McCleary ruling, which was the 2012 state Supreme Court ruling that uh, said the state was not adequately funding K through 12 education. Um, We will, at the very end, hopefully we'll have time, also talk about charter schools. That's another big issue since the, uh, another issue involving the state Supreme Court, they ruled recently that charter schools are unconstitutional. Very, very controversial ruling. Um, But first, we'll spend the bulk of the time on McCleary. Um, So first of all, welcome, Representative Magandans. Thanks, Mary. Thank you for being here. Um, Oh, and also, by the way, this is very inside baseball, but this is the, I guess, the second time we've gone off-site. So I'm here in in Bellevue. So very excited about that. I got out of Seattle. (laughs) Um, Let's just... uh, Go right into McCleary. Um, you, the legislature has done a lot of work so far on funding um, aspects of basic education, including reducing K through three class size, mm-hmm. material supplies, operating costs, uh, transportation. transportation. Yeah, um, all day kindergarten. That's right. All that was the other one I forgot. And then kindergarten to third grade uh, class size reductions. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you've taken care of that, but there's another huge piece. Probably, the, would you say the most expensive piece? Well, certainly the most controversial. Most controversial, which is the state now has to take responsibility for funding teacher salaries as far as they relate to basic education instruction. Yeah, and that's really getting to the core uh, constitutionality of creating a system, a program of basic education the state runs that relies on local levies for funding part of it. And uh, I think the Supreme Court was right on that that's that's unconstitutional, that we have to set up a system where we're funding our program ourselves. Yeah. Um, Now, the big and I've seen uh, last I've seen the number that's estimated to cost is about three point five billion dollars. Yeah, it's somewhere between three and three point five. Three and three point five. Okay, so the big question, uh, which you can answer, I'm sure, in just a few minutes is how are we going to pay for it? And where's the money going to come from? No, that is the big question. <laughs> and uh, we'll probably be working on that answer, uh, negotiating that answer for a couple of years now. Um, we're actually, uh, I'm a member of the uh, Governor's McCleary Task Force. Oh, right. And uh, yes. there are eight of us legislators there, two That's from each caucus. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, the goal uh and, and I do give the governor's staff credit for this, is that we've, we've been able to kind of narrow the focus a little bit and take it in chunks, reasonable chunks. And really, that was the recipe of our success with House Bill 2776, which has been implementing most of the uh, work we've done for McCleary up until now. And that was the bill that, was that the one that defined 
basic education. Oh no, that was twenty two sixty one. Twenty seven seventy six implemented the new funding formula and oh, yes, set the uh, right. the targets for all of those areas you mentioned earlier. Yes, okay. uh, basically everything except compensation. Right, and that was the framework for the Supreme Court, right? Exactly. They, yeah. yeah. Okay. So okay, they they basically give that the, the gave that the stamp of approval. They okay. were concerned about our ability to follow through on the aggressive schedule we'd set, right. but we've actually proven that that was not a concern. That that mm-hmm. shouldn't have been a concern. We've been hitting all of our marks. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a couple cases where there was some work we had to go back and show that we we had in fact met our uh, met our marks for each each step of the glide path down to full implementation by 2018. And so our our immediate goal in the 2016 legislative session is to do the same thing for compensation. And that means not necessarily figuring out how to pay for it because if you look at 2776, we we set our our commitments as far as funding, you know, the, the, the formula as well as all day class size, all day, you know, class size reduction, all those things. Mm-hmm. We, we set the, the commitments to funding those without really saying how we were going to get that money. And there were some right. tough decisions that had to be made in the appropriations process. Sometimes we had new funding because of econ- economic recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we you know, were able to move money and put more growth into education versus non-education programs. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, was, it was difficult, but we were able to do it. The goal is to do the same thing with compensation. I think there's a general understanding that that's going to – it's not something you're going to you know, pull out of the out of the sofa cushions. You know, this is yeah. this is a large sum of money by anybody's definition. Yep. And uh, you know, we could get some favorable forecasts, but they're not going to be, you know, 3 billion dollars per biennium. Uh the odds of that are very low right now. Mm-hmm. So, and it has to be an ongoing revenue source too. Right, it absolutely. just can't be, you know, pennies from heaven yeah, because we had a, a good time. year. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh there is this commitment basically to um to, to follow through on that. And, and really, the overall goals that everyone agrees on is that we need to eliminate the dependency on local levies for the state's program of basic education, mm-hmm. that we need to provide ample state funding to offer competitive salary and benefits in every school, mm-hmm. and that we want to minimize the disruptive impact to school districts and to taxpayers. Right. And so everybody, both sides of the aisle, both sides of the uh, rotunda, all kind of agree with those those basic goals. Okay. And then the the timeline that we've been working out so far, and and this is you know still fairly preliminary, is that in the 2016 session we would have some kind of commitment to the uh, to the timeline, uh, that the plan that the court has been asking for. Oh, okay. Uh, but also funding interim research uh, and data collection to make sure that we understand the statewide spending commitment. Um, and that we have a reasonable local labor market adjustment that includes regional cost of living, as well as many other factors that affects, affect a, a district's ability to retain, uh, to attract and retain quality teachers. Sure, and that means, and that know, means some districts it's more expensive as a teacher; it'd be more expensive to live, and some district would be less expensive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it may be less expensive to live in Washtukna, but right. it could be much more difficult to attract teachers, right. particularly young single mm-hmm. teachers out there, because there's there's no social life. You know, sorry, Washtukna. Sorry. <laughs> Wash- we love you. We love you, Washtukna. Really. But, you know, they have their own challenges attracting Absolutely. and retaining people out there. And uh, to, to basically get a local labor market adjustment that incorporates all those factors um, and affects the distribution of funding throughout the state is, is the other piece. And those... Those research projects have been started, uh, but there's not general consensus on, on where we're going to end up, and so we need to make sure we do that homework first. Interesting. Um, and when do you think that that research will be available? Because I imagine it'll be much more productive to have 
numbers. Exactly. And I think the uh, thinking is that between March and November of of next year, we'll have either task force put together or consultants who are brought in. Um, In fact, we go back as far as the uh, the overall statewide spending commitment, very often go back to reports that were generated by consultants for the the Compensation Technical Working Group. And I've talked to the the people who actually did that report as well just to get a Mm -hmm. feel for whether that was a reasonable uh, time period to be doing all that work, and mm-hmm. generally we've 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 gotten positive feedback that it is possible. You know, the challenge, the, the really big challenge, is um, kind of pulling out how districts are spending their money. We know how much uh, districts are spending on compensation, um, but we don't know what percentage of that is spent for basic education versus legitimate enhancements to basic education. Right. Things like. Uh, if you wanted to reduce the class size below the state's program, you know, program goal, or if you wanted to add additional days to the year or longer days uh, or additional responsibilities like coaching or mentoring or uh, you know, department head type responsibilities, right. those are all legitimate things that could be funded by local levies. By local levies and because we need they're to, not basic education. Exactly. Okay. But we need to tease those out yeah. in our accounting system so that we're transparent to the court and can show that we're paying for our program-based education, and we're not taking any money from the local districts. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense because you don't want to guess on that. And that would also, I would imagine, protect you from maybe future litigation where, oh, you're not paying. If you know exactly what it is you need to pay or at least a good estimate. And I think a lot of people don't realize that we've been here before. Um, The original Duran decision in 78 set up the uh, the common schools levy, which is how we chose to, mm-hmm. you know, a dedicated stable funding source in this case, state property taxes right. that were that were set aside for our common schools. And um, at that point, we had three dollars and sixty cents per thousand dollars assessed value, mm-hmm. and that's um you know that's a considerable amount of money. That's about uh, one point four billion per year, or about two point eight billion per biennium. Okay, um, that we would actually be able to use within our existing levy authority for the common schools levy. Um, it started at $3.60. It's actually gone down to about $2 per thousand uh, because of Initiative 747, which mm-hmm. set the cap at uh, 1% or inflation, whichever is lower. Mm-hmm. So it's actually mm-hmm. been kind of eroding our, our uh, right. levy authority for the common schools levy. Okay. Um, and I want to, you, you bring that up, the state levy. I want to switch over to an idea that you support um, and that has some bipartisan support, and that's the idea of whatever you want, a levy swap, mm-hmm. levy exchange. Yeah. Um, could you explain what that is and why you think it's a, it's a good solution or at least partial solution? Well, I think our key to success here is, is to try to avoid taking on these long-term ideological debates you know, between the parties, you know, things mm-hmm. that we're just frankly not going to solve in the time frame that we have. And so uh, whenever possible, we try to, you know, reduce our scope. Uh, one of the things that we gravitate to is that report that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that the National Center for Education Statistics did for the common, uh, the, um, the Compensation Technical Working Group. Mm-hmm. And the conclusions mm-hmm. from that report was that we are offering competitive salary in mm-hmm. districts when you combine the state and local and funding local. sources and that the, uh, the health benefits were unusually generous. Actually, said. So that, that would indicate that um, overall pay is, is competitive. Okay. Um, and so if we can set aside uh, a debate about generating more revenue for teachers, mm-hmm. which you know, currently make about $66,000 per year on average statewide mm-hmm. and have seen an increase every year even through the recession, um, if you can set aside a, a discussion about increasing overall compensation 
and, and say, okay, well, where is the money being paid right now? Well, it's being paid by locals. Now, how is that money being paid by locals? Well, there are local excess levies that we do every four years typically mm-hmm. that supplement to the tune of about 33% of, of compensation is coming from uh, local levies. And uh, if you think about it, you know, a lot of the debates that have been ma- made around you know, equity of taxation systems uh, about how regressive our taxation system is in the state is especially true for local levies. Hmm. Because if you look at the individual districts, um, the highest property value areas are paying the lowest tax rates. And that is the definition of, of regressive tax system. Mm-hmm. And so areas like Seattle and Bellevue are paying about a buck thirty. And the average to get the levy lid is is three dollars and fifty five cents. And in fact, Seattle and Bellevue have grandfathered levy lids that are even higher than the state average. Oh. So you know, for every dollar per thousand of assessed value that Seattle puts in, they raise twenty seven hundred bucks. Whereas um, Highline, which is just right next to Seattle, raises six hundred and change, and Yakima raises about three hundred and two dollars. So you're seeing a big disparity between what some districts can raise for the same amount of, you know, taxation pain or mm-hmm. tax burden, sure. right? So um, that's a very un- inequitable system, and it's something we need to fix. And so by reducing our dependency, actually eliminating our dependency on local levies for basic ed, we, we further that, that goal. Okay, so what that would mean is you would eliminate the local levy for anything basic education. Exactly. And then you would have the state... Raise the common schools levy. So that that $1.4 billion per year that we could get from the common schools levy, we would use that to offset uh, reductions in local levies statewide. And it it would vary a little bit district to district. But overall, the idea is it would be a statewide revenue-neutral swap for money that was being raised locally, this local Mm -hmm. excess levies, Mm -hmm. that, again, has to be renewed every four years. So that's a lot of work for districts to go out and do that. And move that into the, the state's... Uh, common schools levy, which is a, an immediately renewed, so they don't have to put that out for the people every four okay. years. Okay, so okay. that would be a more a stable more reliable, and reliable yeah. uh, funding source for our schools. Now, what about the members of the legislature who represent areas where um, their constituent homeowners would see their tax bills go up? I've already heard um, some members say, "Uh-uh, we're not going to do that." Yeah. Well, in those areas that are paying very low property tax rates right now for the common schools levy, like Seattle and Bellevue, mm-hmm. and, and really it's it's all Seattle and Bellevue Seattle for the most Bellevue. part. Okay. Uh, and when you're at a buck thirty and the rest of the states, you know, averaging you know three fifty five, uh, you've been making out pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so any kind of swap like this is not going to benefit those districts as far as you know tax burden. Uh, it will likely go up in Seattle and Bellevue. Now, what we've done to uh, ameliorate that is. Um, We've recognized the fact that having a single salary schedule for the whole state just doesn't make any sense. The uh, median household income in in, uh, in King County is seventy thousand dollars a year, whereas Whitman County, out you know where the Cougs are, mm-hmm. is thirty three thousand dollars a right. year. And yeah. and to use a single salary schedule for the, all, the whole state when there's such a disparity in what the local labor market is doesn't doesn't make any logic logical sense. But mm-hmm. it's also a way for us to kind of offset the big losers and winners that would that would exist for a levy swap. Sure. So, for example, uh, Seattle's tax rates would go up, but because it's got a higher regional cost of living and a local labor market is just more expensive in Seattle, the state funding would go up as well. Oh, so, that's, so the, yeah, that's the sweetener. You don't have as many big winners or losers that way. Okay. Yep. And that's the goal is to do them both concurrently and so it, it minimizes the impact to the districts. 
And do you think that's doable? I mean, obviously, we, you won't be doing this in the next session because it's, would you? It's a, it's a short session. So the, any le- kind of levy swap or yeah. any of the, the sourcing of the, uh, of the revenue uh-huh. would, be, would be the 2017 the net, Yeah, because that's session. far less. There's also the kind of political realities of exactly. people not wanting to take a big tax hike vote right, you know, right before the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah, surprise, right. Yeah. Um, so... So that that won't be happening this session, but I'm sure it'll be something that's will be a topic of discussion. And what do you, uh, what's the sense you get for people signing on to that? I mean, I imagine it would take a little bit of wheeling yeah. and dealing. There are three factions right now forming, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is um, you know, people who've been working on this problem for a while. Uh, like me, mm-hmm. have been scoping it down and trying to figure out, okay, how do we address the constitutionality issues here that's at the core of the McCleary issue, mm-hmm. uh, the McCleary case? And uh, they're kind of the minimalists. They're trying to do exactly what's needed to address the, the constitutional problem and no more. Um, and then there's a, a group of I mean, mostly Democrats that are trying to use the McCleary crisis um, to drive an agenda around uh, you know, growth of government and uh, new taxation. You know, they want to see revenue growth. Mm-hmm. And so they're the ones who are really pushing for an income tax, a carbon tax, or a capital gains tax, new types of taxes that they believe address tax inequity. And again, that's getting into a lot of the um, ideological debates that have been sure. happening for generations. Sure, yeah. Our chances of solving that, I think, are very low. And so I've mm-hmm. been trying to steer people away from those those types of discussions. But this third faction that's you know, frankly been growing very strongly in my caucus as well as in the Senate Republican caucus, I call the pound sand faction. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the guys who are getting very frustrated with this recent um, set of rulings from the courts that have been, in their minds, legislating from the bench mm-hmm. and really encroaching around you know, the separation of powers issue. You know, when the courts start telling us how to budget, how to legislate, you know, Feathers get ruffled. Absolutely. And uh, these these people are getting very frustrated with the courts right now. They're they're worried about anything that could be done legislatively that would be perceived as a court win. Um, mm-hmm. And they really want to emphasize the fact that they believe the uh, the Supreme Court has overstepped its its uh, separation of powers boundaries. And so, uh, you know, there's there's an element that just wants to throw up their hands and walk away and say, uh, you know, come back when when you've when you've got a solution that doesn't encroach on legislative uh, legislative rights. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I guess that's something which we'll just have to wait and see yeah. how that and, works you know, out. Overall, but- I think everybody recognizes that there's there's work that needs to be done here that's just right for education in this state, that yes. is an appropriate and constitutional response to you know, elements of our system that are just broken right now. And right. that's where we've tried to keep the focus. Okay. So... Um, one more question, well, actually, a couple more questions on the how to pay for it. Um, with the levy swap, how much of that three, approximately three to three and a half, three point five billion, would the levy swap cover? Uh, about one point five four per year, or about two point eight for by annual. Okay, so it doesn't quite get us there. Yeah. Yeah. So even if you know the uh, you know the Republicans had their uh, statewide revenue neutral swap mm-hmm. implementation, um, you still have to come up with about you know, half a billion dollars okay. roughly 
of, of new funding to kind of make up for the shortfalls that we just don't have the levy capacity in the common schools levy. And of course, that's where, you know, the, the Democrats would love to see their capital gains tax capital or gains something tax else like or, that, that they, okay. they see as an opportunity to get the camel's nose under the tent and create this new <laughs> new tax that they could potentially um, use later. Okay. Um, what, you know, this is um, kind of beside the point because it's in our our state constitution that we have to amply provide for the education of all children. But, you know, I was looking at um, diff- how different states, I, oh, it was a, uh, the House Finance Committee, mm-hmm. the, the staff did a survey of all the different states and how they fund education. And most other states, there's a balance between local and state funding. I was thinking, you know, what happens if there's a big economic downturn? I mean, that not that that wouldn't affect local communities as well. Um, but with the state taking on, again, not saying it doesn't have to be done because it's yeah, in our constitution, yeah. but I'm just you know, thinking ahead to how, what can you do to sort of help, you can't do it completely, but help protect against future big downturns that could affect education well, funding. if you look at the constitutional language, I mean, the paramount duty, that's the highest priority. That yeah. is the first dollar spent. Yeah. And you'll hear a lot of Republicans talk about fund education first. And that's really right. what we're trying to reflect is that if you prioritize, you shouldn't risk education right. even if you have a pretty significant economic downturn. Now, in other states like Oregon, for example, that are more dependent on, on more elastics, more volatile sources of, mm-hmm. uh, of revenue like you know, income tax and in particular capital gains tax is very volatile. Yes, it is um, very volatile. They've had trouble in the recession maintaining, mm-hmm. you know, just basic education funding mm-hmm. just because their their income taxes would vary so much. Yeah. And uh, that makes it tough unless you have a lot of discipline as a legislature and can put money aside into a rainy day fund, a significant rainy day fund. Yeah. Um, you're going to suffer those those uh, swings, those the mm-hmm. roller coaster ride. That's mm-hmm. actually I was reading a. Uh, an article about it the other day. They really, you know, uh, liken it to a roller coaster ride, mm-hmm. and they see it as a mm-hmm. very frustrating problem. That just the way their system's set up, it's it's they're continu- continually struggling with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but don't the Democrats have a point in saying, "Look, you, we, there's not enough, even with the levy swap." Say they agreed to that. That's still not enough um, to get us all the way to full funding, um, and the economy probably won't, you know grow enough to gen- just automatically generate all those revenues? And doesn't the state have a responsibility to make sure in case of a future economic downturn that uh, important social services and other essential government services are funded? And so don't we realistically need new taxes, a new source of revenue? So uh, up until now, we funded uh, 1776, mm-hmm. um, mainly by prioritizing education uh, funding growth. Okay. Do you mean 2776? Oh, yes, 2776. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 2776, um, every year we'd go in and we, you know, historically, uh, for the 30 years prior to 2012 when the McClear ruling came out mm-hmm. and when I joined the legislature, we've been putting $2 of new money into non-education spending for every dollar we put into education spending. And the effect is that we basically have been divesting education from our from our general fund, from our budget. Mm-hmm. And so since 2012, we've flipped that. In fact, we've in the 2013 budget, we put $4 in education spending for every $1 in non-education spending. And so you know, technically not cutting uh, the non, 
non-education spending, but really favoring new money into those areas that were our constitutional paramount duty. Mm. And we did the same thing this year. Uh, we actually increased edu- uh, K-12 education funding by 19%, the highest right. in state history. Yeah. And so those are pretty significant milestones. In fact, if you look since the original McClure ruling, we've increased K-12 funding by 36% overall. Wow. And so uh, that's all without new taxes. Right. Because we were just prioritizing. Mm-hmm. And there was this fear that there would have been draconian cuts to the social services, but I don't think those fears have been, for the most part, realized mm-hmm. because there has been growth. It just hasn't been as great as it has been in the past. And frankly, we needed to get a handle on that because our caseload growth for social services was so much higher than our, our revenue increases that it was unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And so we, we needed to address that caseload management issue eventually. We okay. just got to it a little earlier. Okay. Um, well, I don't want to, I could keep asking about McCleary forever, but um, I'm sure we'll, hopefully we'll have you on again to talk about this in more depth. But I did want to talk uh, just for a few minutes about charter schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the Supreme Court issued its very controversial ruling that uh, charter schools are unconstitutional. It's The ruling has received a lot of criticism. It in has, fact, today, yes. as we're recording, well, I guess it was yesterday, um, all four former living attorneys general um, issued a, you know, a request to the Supreme Court to reconsider. The sitting attorney general has. You're part of a bipartisan group of 10 legislators who have asked the court to reconsider. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like everyone and their dog has asked the Supreme Court to reconsider. Um, uh, you had a an op-ed in the Seattle Times. Can you tell us what the what the legislature might be doing if if this ruling stands? What the legislature might be doing in response? Well, there's two things. Uh, first of all, we need to kind of address this um, common schools issue. Uh, mm-hmm. When the original initiative was approved, the language said it was a common school, and uh, I think most reasonable people would would agree that the constitutional definition of a of a common school probably doesn't apply to charters because of the lack of elected mm-hmm. oversight in many cases but not all cases many districts actually are sponsored by their their home school district interesting uh, many, many schools mm-hmm. so um uh, i think we need to address some basic issues of the original language um okay and, and it really comes down to is it a common school i would say Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, what access does it have to school construction funds and local levies raised by school districts? And and I'm working with one other member of the House. We're going to have a bipartisan bill to basically apply those fixes to the uh, to the existing state statute for for common schools. Um, aside from that, though, there's this whole other issue: the commingling uh, mm-hmm. aspect of the ruling that. Because it wasn't a common school, it couldn't be funded from the general fund, which includes uh, constitutionally de- dedicated revenue sources like the, the common schools levy right. that are intended only for common schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really opened up a can of worms because there's a lot of things that are funded from the general fund That's that right. are not common schools, yeah. including a whole bunch of schools, yep. Uh, yep. tribal schools, mm-hmm. uh, youth academies, um, there's... Uh, a running Start running program. Running Start, that's a hugely popular yeah. program. Uh, and, of course, the whole higher education system is not a common school. Mm-hmm. And so, really, that precedent, if applied uniformly, uh, would say that we can't fund anything but common schools from the general fund. Mm-hmm. And the consequences in our budgeting and appropriation process are pretty significant. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and, and another aspect of that is that a lot of our debt limit is determined by the, the general fund's uh, overall size. And so if we start pulling out large revenue sources like the common schools levy, we start decreasing the amount of money in the left in the general fund, which decreases our capital uh, capability because if our debt limit reduces, then we can't fund more capital oh, projects. Oh, interesting. So Gosh, ironically, all, yeah, yeah, all you'll be able to build fewer schools <laughs> by, by separating out these, <laughs> yeah. these common school yeah. uh, revenue sources. And then there's you know, the general idea of approaches uh, is, can be applied to other sources as well. For example, we have an 18th Amendment that says that you can't use gas tax for non-highway purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, we commingle those funds in mm-hmm. the transportation budget as mm-hmm. well. So that would mean that we can't use gas taxes or, or any revenue uh, in the transportation budget for non-highway purposes, which is all oh, your mass transit and things oh, like sure. that, which I'm sure would upset quite a few people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I don't think the courts really understood the the consequences of that last aspect of the decision. And so that's where I really hope they're focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it is rare for the court to actually reconsider uh, a ruling like this. But if there ever was a good case to be made for it, this is the one. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you talk about the, leg- the uh, judicial branch inserting itself into the process of you know, legislative responsibility. Nothing is more core than our ability to budget. And we do make a point of uh, going back after the fact and showing that you know, the constitutionally dedicated funds are not needed to fund non- those purposes they're not designated for. Um, and that's just an exercise left to staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to complicate the, the budgeting process with all these separate silos that would have to be created, oh boy. Uh, it would be ugly. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, as it really does seem to be bipartisan and across the board, the, uh, the critiques of the ruling. So. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, these are good schools. Right. And they're affecting kids who need the innovation the most. Yeah. Uh, these are you know, chronically underserved kids. Yeah. Uh, the the schools have been failing for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at some point, you know, we need to intervene at the state level mm-hmm. and kind of step in and break that cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, one of the best ways to to break the cycle is to, to offer parents more choice. Yep. So if they can move their kids to a charter school, and and these charter formulas, um, you know, again, these are nonprofits. Uh, these are you know known success stories. These these. Mm-hmm. Um, these charter management organizations have done this again and again in the toughest demographics in the nation, and they have recipes that work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a little bit of innovation introduced, and especially given the fact that you know parents really get to opt in to a charter school. You know, I'm a little reluctant to uh, to volunteer kids uh, for you know new trials, new approaches that are sure. are maybe not necessarily as vetted as as I would like if they don't get a choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if you're a parent and you like the KIPP approach or you like Green Dot or, and, and you just you see this as being uh, something that makes sense to you and mm-hmm. you want your kids to be part of the experiment, by all means, sign up because mm-hmm. quite often we discover a lot about how we can improve every other school in the state. Interesting. Um, well, in Randy's absence, she did send me a question to ask. So I'm going to be... Um, uh, a little bit of a contrarian. Not that Randy's a contrarian, but just asking a different type of question. Um, so why do you believe publicly funded charter schools are acceptable rather than finding a way for public school districts to use that funding to create new and creative ways to teach those who would be attracted to charter schools? So why not just 
instead of, you know, having the money diverted to the charter schools, why not just plow it into the existing public school system to create these innovative ways to teach? Yeah. I was actually president of the ISCO school board, and mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time talking about this mm-hmm. because every school district wants to be one of those districts that does the innovative school. Right. Um, and some have. Uh, but it's rare. Okay. Um, so Delta uh, High, which was actually an effort by three school districts out in the Tri-Cities area. Uh, we've had Aviation High School. Mm-hmm. We've had a couple experiments like the uh, big picture schools in, in Highline and Bellevue. Um, those have been uh, relatively successful experiments working within the existing uh, system. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the issue I have, though, is that they really don't push the boundaries very mm-hmm. much. It's a very conservative approach. When you're on a school board, you're very risk averse, um, and, and I was guilty of that too. I, I don't like sort of experimenting the with of the, kids, yeah, right? Yeah. And especially if their parents don't get an opportunity to kind of opt in, mm-hmm. right? So I want the bleeding edge to be done uh, in an organization that is much more receptive to taking those risks. Okay. And I don't think most school districts are, just from my personal mm-hmm. experience. And I want it to be done with kids and parents who, who are opting into the program and are really kind of invested in its success. Okay. And I, th- I think that's going to open a lot more doors and allow people more comfort with trying new ideas. And that's what it's all about. But you know, you got to remember, you know, I'm I'm a tech sector guy. Mm-hmm. You know, we try new ideas all the time. We have startups failing left and right. Yeah. Um, you know, if startups fail with our kids, there are consequences. Huge consequences. Significant consequences. Yeah. And I think much many of us in on school boards are very sensitive to that risk, and we want to do it very carefully. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Well, uh, State Representative Chad Mangadon, thank thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And uh, hope, we'll, hope to maybe have you on again sometime. Thanks, Mary. All right. And thank you to the listeners, and we'll talk to you next week. Policy Today is a production of the Washington Research Council, dedicated to providing timely, credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation. For more information, go to researchcouncil.org.